0: This month's Ocean Allison podcast episode is brought to you by you the listeners. A big thank you to everyone that's contributed a dollar or more to my subscription-based funding platform at patreon.com/oceanallison. And for those that haven't, visit patreon.com/oceanallison to watch my video and learn more about how you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. And now to this month's episode. This episode's Ocean Advocate is Chelsea Bennis. Chelsea is a marine biologist studying the behavioral ecology of octopus in South Florida. Hi, Chelsea. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me, Allison. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on the show, to have an octopus scientist here. I love octopus. I think probably... Most of our listeners love Octopus, or if they don't, you guys will definitely love Octopus by the end of this episode. Listeners, to give you guys a little bit of background on how Chelsea is joining us today on the show. A uh, while ago, I started following Chelsea on Instagram. You can find her on Instagram at the Girl. So that's the octo octo girl because she is the octopus girl and um, you can also find her on facebook Um, and so i started following her and i just really love all that she posts she posts amazing imagery and videos all that video and imagery that she collects during her octopus research she actually posts that on social media and shares it with the public which is really cool Um, and obviously gives info and nice facts and all that so um, i wanted to have her on the show today to share all of that with you guys and you know, I definitely recommend after, the, after you listen to this episode, checking out her Instagram and Facebook um, so you guys can see all that awesome imagery. But we're going to try to describe some of that for you guys today as you're listening. So Chelsea, I would love to start out before we start talking about octopus because that's what we're going to be talking about most of the time today. I do want to point out that You are from Ohio. Originally, you grew up there, you even got your undergraduate degree there. And now you are a marine biologist living in South Florida, studying octopus and, you know, scuba diving all the time. So how did that come about? Because it's not a super common story you hear. Um, How did you go from, you know, growing up in Ohio in the snow to uh, coming to Florida and studying marine biology, getting interested in that?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a small town right on Lake Erie, so I've always been surrounded by the water. And my first introduction to marine biology was in high school, so my Ohio high school class offered a marine biology course. And so I took that course and I fell in love and said, like, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to become a marine biologist But I didn't become a marine biologist right away. I did my uh, bachelor's degree at the Ohio State University and did some work in freshwater biology. So I did a lot of research um, with the Ohio fish hatcheries and also with Lake Erie. It wasn't until after uh, my time at Ohio State that I then did an internship in the Florida Keys. So I said, I've got some experience in freshwater, I'm now gonna make the transition to saltwater. And I took up an internship at Big Pine Key at Sea Camp. And there I was introduced to different marine environments like the mangroves, coral reefs, and I was able to observe what was going on So after my time, my internship at Big Pine Key Sea Camp, I then made the transition back up north to Woods Hole, Massachusetts, where I then was introduced to the cephalopods. So that was my first introduction with cuttlefish and squid, Mm -hmm. and I fell in love with the animal behavior, their camouflage. And so that was further experience with marine animals, and I decided... I still loved marine science, but it was too cold up north, so I came back down to Florida where I did my master's at Florida Atlantic University. and now I am still at FAU working on
0: my PhD. So you you were always into the water and you started doing freshwater biology, but then once you were introduced to the saltwater ecosystems, you kind of got hooked. Yeah, and
1: <laughs> I took a, it was a spring break trip or vacation with my father to the Virgin Islands. And that's when, that was in high school. And that's when it was my first time snorkeling in the saltwater environment, in the ocean. And all of the fish I had been seeing in Ohio in the books, I could actually see now out in the wild. And I started IDing them and naming them. And
0: I thought it was the best thing.
1: And that's what I definitely wanted to do for my career.
0: That's so awesome. Well, you've definitely, you know, forged your own path coming from Ohio to Florida. And like you said, you're now a PhD candidate at Florida Atlantic University doing your octopus research. You know, I know you mentioned you started doing some squid and cuttlefish research again for listeners if you don't know that term cephalopod that chelsea used that's the grouping that squid cuttlefish and octopus all are in they're all close cousins but i know you said you started studying those a bit and now you focus primarily on octopus what really drew your interest to octopus what about octopus really fascinated you so that you decided okay i want to primarily focus on octopus So I've
1: always been interested in animal behavior. And the octopus is such a great animal to study for that. And um, my master's work was not focusing on cephalopods or octopus or cuttlefish. It was focusing on fish and shrimp and how they use this floating habitat. So I wasn't focused on octopuses to begin with. I kind of went away and then I came back. So animal behavior, studying any animal, whether it's an octopus, a fish, or a shrimp, I'm just interested in. And so during my master's work I actually did some scuba diving at my study site right now that's the inner coastal waterway or Lake Worth Lagoon and that's where my advisor and I spotted these two different types or species of octopus. We found them and we saw their different behaviors. We saw them coexisting and I said, "Wow, this would be a great animal behavior project. So that's when I moved towards the animal behavior focusing on
0: octopuses. They really do have some amazing behaviors, which I want to get into in just a second. But really quick, I feel like this is a question that I get all the time from people, you know, when I'm doing education stuff, and I'm not actually an octopus scientist. So I feel like this is a really great question for you. I've heard you say a couple times now in the conversation, the word octopuses. some people, you know, ask me, is it octopi, is it octopus, just, you know, even if you're talking about multiple octopus, uh, or is it octopuses? So what's your, what's your take on all that?
1: Yeah, so the plural is octopuses, so it's or octopods or octopodes. So the word octopus is Greek, not Latin, so it doesn't take the plural form with the I. And so the plural form would be octopodes in Greek, however, through the English language we you can then add on the es to make it plural so octopuses is correct. however, I do hear people say octopi uh, it's becoming I guess more accepted but You'll never hear me say octopi.
0: <laughs> okay, so so for the record, it's octopuses, not octopi. If any of you listeners out there have <laughs> ever wondered that, thank you for clearing that up, Chelsea. Yeah. Okay, so before we start getting into your research specifically, I do want to just ask you a little bit to describe some of the more remarkable qualities that octopus possess because they really are amazing animals you know in in the underwater world as well as just anywhere in the entire planet they're they're so incredible so what are some qualities that octopus have that you think are, are really remarkable that you'd like to share with listeners
1: Yeah, so one of the major qualities, and I think everyone's familiar with this, is that they're remarkable camouflage. These animals can change not only their color, but their skin texture in less than a second. And so how they're able to do that is that they have these color-changing cells called chromatophores. So these chromatophores, they have different colors inside them or different types or colors of pigment. And so this pigment can be uh, red, orange, yellow, or black. And so around these colored filled sacs, is muscle. So this muscle allows that sac to expand and expose that color or you can retract it and you do not see that color as much. So you can think of this as a balloon, like a water balloon filled with ink. So you can't see the color of the ink in the water balloon that great, however if you were to squeeze that water balloon that ink would go around the edges and then you'd start to see that color more. So the chromatophores are acting In a similar way. So if they expand or retract these different color-filled sacs, they can achieve different color combinations. And so not only do they have these color-filled sacs, but they also have these reflector cells. So these reflector cells can then uh, give colors or they can reflect blues, greens, silvers, pinks, and white. So this is how the octopus or cephalopod achieves these different colors. And so they can do all of this in different patterns in less than a second. But not only can they do that, and that's cool because a lot of other fish, can, other fish can do this, but they can't do that as quickly as an octopus because they don't have the same mechanism as an octopus does. Mm-hmm. An octopus can also raise the skin. So they can use the muscles in their skin to go from a smooth skin and then raise it up to be a bumpy skin. So when you have this texture of the skin and the color of the skin combined, um, the octopus can camouflage right into its background, or it can actually mimic another animal or look like an
0: inanimate object, like a rock or a piece of algae. And then some other things that you know, I, I always love to share with people about octopus is that they have a really, really complex and amazing nervous system. So they mm. have their central brain, you know, in in their mantle, in their head, but then they also have kind of these auxiliary brains. Can you describe that system a little bit?
1: Yeah, so I like to say the octopus has nine brains and three hearts. It definitely sounds like an alien, something that wouldn't be on this earth. So it has the central brain that you mentioned, and then it has kind of smaller brains in each arm. So each arm can do something differently without receiving a message from its central
0: brain yeah so when you when you start saying things like nine brains, three hearts they can change the color and the texture of their skin and you know all of these all of these amazing things they they truly are remarkable and so 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 unique so that's kind of some general octopus knowledge for all of our listeners um, just skimming the surface because there's also There's obviously lots of other amazing qualities that they have. Um, But to get into your research, so you're currently a PhD candidate at Florida Atlantic University. That's in southeast Florida uh, for listeners that don't know where that is. And like you mentioned a little bit ago, you're studying these two specific species. And they are the common octopus and the Atlantic long-arm octopus. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And so you're doing most of your research at a site called Blue Heron Bridge, which is, if any of you listeners have been there, you know that it is an amazing snorkeling and scuba diving spot. I absolutely love going there. And there's an amazing diversity of ocean animals, even though it's technically not in the ocean, it's in the intercoastal. So at Blue Heron Bridge, you're diving under this bridge and you're. Observing all of these octopuses, you know, these two different species. What are your main research questions or, or your main research question in general? What are you looking for when you're under this bridge scuba diving with these octopuses?
1: Yeah, so about five years ago, when we were uh, scuba diving around and under the bridge, we noticed that these two species of octopus, the common octopus and the Atlantic long arm octopus, are coexisting and there's a, quite a few of them there coexisting together. So the big research question is, how are these two species of octopus coexisting and not competing for resources? And so to look at this big research question, I broke it up into five smaller research questions. So I wanted to determine the resources for each species to see if they're using the same resources or if they're using different resources. So we call that resource partitioning to facilitate coexistence of these two species of octopus. So my smaller research questions that I'm looking at for each species is where do they live? So their spatial distribution in the area around the bridge. What do they use to make their homes? So uh, what types of substrate does each species use? Do they use rock, rubble, sand? Do they need a lot of structure? Sometimes octopuses will live in pipes or cans, artificial reefs if available. What does each species eat? So do they eat the same food or is it different? When are they active? So when do they come out to eat? And then the last question, not only when are they active, but Where do they go to get their food? So I'm looking at their foraging behavior. So what types of substrate they forage on and what types of uh, foraging behaviors they use on that specific substrate that may be more advantageous to catch a prey item.
0: So you're answering a lot of questions about these octopuses and really it seems to me like you're really looking at them very holistically to really get a good sense of, you know, where are they living? What are they doing? What are they eating? When are they doing? And, and all these sorts of things. So I know one tool that you use that I I love the, the name for it. You call them octopus monitoring gadgets or OMGs, which I think yeah. is great, which are, is basically a camera that you put out next to an octopus's den and you know it records video day and night so what what are some things that you've recorded with those octopus monitoring gadgets that like really surprised you that you never expected to see
1: yeah so the octopus monitoring gadget is used to look at the activity time of each species so when they leave and when they come back to the den and the den is another name for the octopus's home so I want to know if the octopuses are coming out during different times or not. And to do this, I have to do 24-hour video. Um, it's a lot easier than going and diving at maybe 3 a.m. in the morning. Only thing is, is that I've got to review all of this video footage. So it's a ton of footage I get to go through. But like you said, I see some amazing things and a lot of things that I thought I would not see on the video couple cool things that I've seen are diving marine birds and so octopuses have a lot of predators so I've seen potential um, attacks from diving birds like cormorants that will actually dive down and check out the octopus and I've got one video posted where you can see the octopus making multiple swipes at the bird to try to get it to go away.
0: Wow, that's wild. And so you not only have these octopus monitoring devices that you put out for you know 24-hour time periods, but you also just, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, you spend a lot of time scuba diving in these locations and actually observing the octopus firsthand and, and videotaping them as well. And I know that A big part of what you're studying is the octopus's behaviors like what do they do when they're foraging or when they're not foraging and some of them like have funny names like the parachute and the tripod stance and all these funny things. Can you describe some of those unique behaviors that you've seen these species of octopus doing when you've been observing them underwater?
1: Yeah, one unique behavior that I see in the Atlantic long arm is called flounder swimming or flounder mimicry. And this is when it's out foraging in the sand and it mimics the flatfish or the flounder. And so this is to disguise the animal to not look like an octopus or a tasty treat for its predators and to look like a flounder. So it will move its arms into a shape around um, its body or its eyes to look like a flounder and will actually swim at certain speeds or bursts that mimic the flounder as well. And so that's one one behavior I see more commonly in the Atlantic longarm octopus than the uh, common octopus.
0: And what about the tripod stance? Can you describe that visually for listeners? Because I think that looks really funny.
1: Yeah, and yeah, that's one of my other favorite um, behaviors to see. And again, this is another one that I see more commonly in the Atlantic long arm. It has super long arms, just like the name. So uh, just to give you an idea of how long these arms are, um, the mantle is the part of the octopus that's behind the eyes, and it has a lot of the important organs inside. And so you'll have the mantle size of the Atlantic long arm, is just a couple inches long maybe two inches long and so the atlantic long arms their arms are actually six times the mantle length so super long arms so they're able to use these arms and they pretty much stand up on them like a tripod think that they use this maybe kind of like a lookout tower and so uh, you usually find this species in the sandy areas and so they'll stand up on their arms kind of look out make sure everything's clear areas clear of predators and then they'll go out and forage and so they'll do this before foraging events but also in between foraging events maybe they'll stop for a little bit do the tripod stance make sure um, everything's clear so they don't have to run and hide or go and hide from a predator and then they'll continue on again
0: And you obviously are there in the water observing them doing these kinds of funny behaviors like the tripod stance. Have you gotten really good at, you know, being in the water with them and basically not bothering them, so to speak? So like they're able to go about their own behavior and you're able to film it, but not be changing their behavior, so to speak.
1: Yeah, so I usually keep a good distance from the, the octopus that I'm filming to make sure that they do natural foraging behaviors. And I've done research, I've gotten used to know that what behaviors are natural and maybe which ones may not be. So if I see that they're not doing natural behaviors, I'll just step back and watch them to see if they will do natural foraging behaviors. And So I'll usually keep a good distance because I need natural behaviors for my research. But what's also great about this study site is that it's a very popular dive site and there's a lot of divers around. So I think the octopuses are have also been acclimated to the divers. They know that we're not a predator. They've become used to us as long as we aren't trying to poke at them or anything and just uh, observe them with our eyes. They're usually okay with us and they aren't too skittish.
0: As someone that has spent many 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 hours underwater observing octopus and and like you said kind of having that delicate balance of you know being close enough but not too close and you know letting them do their thing to you does it seem as though the different octopuses or or you know maybe the ones that you have observed for long periods of time does it seem like they have personalities to you a bit has that sort of thing ever crossed your mind
1: Yes, there definitely is a difference between individual octopus. And I kind of like to think of it on, we call it the shy to bold spectrum. Some octopuses may be really shy and they may retreat back into their hole or their den, like right away when they see you. Other octopuses are, they're more bold. So they'll actually come out of their den and they they may check you out. One time, uh, was uh, me and my dive buddy were there, and we found an octopus in its den. And so we sat back and we started watching it, and the, the octopus actually approached us and actually went for my dive buddy's, her dive gauges, and started climbing on them. And so that was really interesting to see, very different from other individual octopuses.
0: And so with all this time you've spent scuba diving at Blue Heron Bridge and putting out these octopus monitoring gadgets and, and reviewing all that footage, I know you're getting close to the end of your PhD. What has been you know, your main research conclusion in looking at these two different species of octopus that inhabit this similar same area?
1: Yeah, so there's n- not... One simple answer, and so the octopuses Perfect. are, <laughs> the octopuses are using different resources at different degrees or at different levels. So, uh, the first question was, where do these octopuses live? And I'm seeing that the octopuses are underwater neighbors. So the two species are real, are living really close to each other. So they're making their dens with their homes really close to each other. So when we talk about resource partitioning, they're not using any spatial partitioning in terms of their den location to facilitate their coexistence. However, since there is that overlap in their homes, I see a different area of resource partitioning. So I looked at what they use to make up their homes. And so, one species, the Atlantic long arm, uses sand pretty much to construct its home or its microhabitat. And then the common octopus uses a lot of structure, like rock and rubble. I find them in the glass bottles, the pipes, uh, cement blocks. So we see that their den ecology is very, very different. So there's there's importance to this patchy environment at blue heron bridge since there's a patchy environment these two species can live right next to each other
0: okay so essentially they're using these different materials to make their home so even though their dens are all in the similar area because they're using different resources they can coexist in that way yep and then what about i know some of your other research questions were you know about what are they eating do they eat the same things
1: yeah, there's, so, there's some diet overlap, but it looks like one species is maybe a generalist eating a lot of different things, and then the other is a specialist. So the common octopus is eating a variety of gastropods, like conchs. It's also eating different types of bivalves, different clams, and also uh, different types of crabs. So it's eating a variety of different things. But with the Atlantic long arm, I'm mostly seeing this octopus eat crabs. So there's diet overlap. However, if, if they're eating different things, that could be diet partitioning. So I'm still collecting some data on what the Atlantic long arm is eating. However, it looks like that, that octopus may be specializing in just eating crabs versus the common octopus eating a little bit of everything.
0: And then, what about? Do you see interaction between the two of them? Like, do you see a common octopus and an Atlantic long arm, like I don't know, fighting over food or anything like that? Ever? Yeah, it's not common to see the two different species
1: interacting. I've seen it a couple times, but it's not common. So usually, octopuses uh, they have they use chemotactile cues. So what they'll do is they have a kind of chemical tactile sensors on their suckers, on their arms. So what they'll do is they'll reach out and actually touch each other. So they may not be able to recognize if they're a different species just by looking at each other, but if they touch each other's um, arms and their suckers and get that, that chemotactile cue, they can tell if they're the same species or not. So when they reach out and touch each other and they realize, like, whoa, like, You're not (laughs) one of me. They usually leave each other and swim away really fast and don't want anything to do with each other. So I usually don't see them fighting or interacting much. However, I do see um, between species. So the same species interacting. So one Atlantic longarm interacting with the other one. And they have been known to fight Um, One species, like I mentioned before, will kick the other one out of the den. And I've also seen this in the common octopus. So I see um, fighting within species, but not really between species.
0: It seems as though in kind of your main primary research question of how are these two species coexisting in this one area, it seems as though they're coexisting very well and and without very much competition or interaction right yeah so
1: not really um interacting that much you know they're using they don't have to fight over dens because they use different substrate to make their dens, looks like they're feeding on different things, and they may not run into each other that much or interact with each other that often because their activity times are different. So the OMG is telling me that these two species come out at different times of the day. So the common octopus is usually coming out or it's more active during the nighttime, and the Atlantic long arm is more active during the daytime. So that's another way they may be avoiding each other.
0: With all these findings and all this data that you're collecting, all these observations, why, to you, and and really, you know, to the public, why is this research important? You know, what's the the overall importance of learning more about these species of octopuses?
1: Yeah, so not just these species of octopuses, but octopuses and cephalopods in general are an important mid-trophic level component to many marine ecosystems. And what I mean by that is that they play an important part in marine food webs. So they're in the middle of many marine food webs. So they're important predators or grazers on animals that are lower in the food web, like crabs and gastropods, but they're an important prey item to animals that are higher up in the food web. And so that's gonna be predators like fish, the marine birds I mentioned before, uh, sea turtles, dolphins, seals. So there's a lot of animals that depend on octopuses for a food source. So they're ecologically important for many
0: marine food webs. And so learning more about them for us as humans can help us to better manage marine ecosystems and, and better when you better understand the marine food web and the ecosystem, you can better manage it and protect it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So knowing where um, important habitats that these animals need to survive. And so figuring out you know, what types of substrates the two octopuses need To coexist is important. The uh, food items that need to be at a habitat is important for these
0: animals. And it's all part of the system that needs to stay healthy.
1: Yeah, so basically they're important for keeping all these different food webs in their balance.
0: Like I mentioned in the beginning, you know, I found you through Instagram. You like to post about your research and those visuals and some videos on there. And so outreach and education is really important to you. I know you beyond just using social media to share your research, you've been on some TV shows and in some like nonprofit documentary videos and you work at a informal science center down in South Florida. So, why is outreach and education to the public important to you? Why why have you made that a priority as a scientist?
1: Yeah, as a scientist, I think it's important that I not only communicate the importance of these animals and marine conservation to other scientists, but also the general public. Also, I love educating about different marine life. So people that may not be aware of what's going on under the water, maybe they are in Ohio, or maybe they're just beachgoers. making them aware of these different marine animals and their cool adaptations and their behaviors may get people interested in marine science and wanna learn more about these topics. So it may make them more interested in marine conservation or maybe a future scientist that may then go into marine biology. So just showing my passion for marine science, uh, not just my research, but in all areas of marine science is important to me, just not to scientists, but to everyone, all different backgrounds and all ages.
0: Well, I definitely support you in that. And obviously, you know, I'm so happy that you could be on the podcast um, to, like you just said, continue to share your passion and your research for octopuses as well as just for the ocean and marine science in general. So um, listeners, if you have been um, inspired and interested by what Chelsea and I have talked today about on the podcast... I definitely recommend checking her out at the Octo Girl on Instagram and then you can find her on Facebook at Octogirl. I will post a link to her Instagram and her Facebook when I post this podcast episode so you guys can get there directly from the podcast episode. So Chelsea, I want to thank you so much for all the positive change that you are creating for the ocean. You're doing all this amazing octopus research and it's not only helping us to better understand these remarkable organisms, but to, you know, have a more complete picture of these underwater ecosystems that we all love and need to be healthy. So thank you for that. And thank you also for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you very much. You just heard Chelsea Bennis, marine biologist studying the behavioral ecology of octopus in South Florida. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com and tune into next month's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.